hey, we're in Mark 8. This is kind of the pinnacle of what we've been working towards, Mark 8, 22. I want to say a few things before we get started. Um, number one, I'm so thankful for all of you guys who participated in any way in the last couple of weeks as we prayed and fasted. The fruit of what the Lord did, I think, will reap for years to come. But, man, as Pastor Seth kept saying, this is this is the sweetest time we've had um, since we've been here, since we've been in this church. It was just such a beautiful three weeks of fasting and um, beautiful and hellish three weeks of fasting. Um, but, man, the Lord moved. So I'm just thankful. Uh, I want to let you know, one of the things that, that came to, to surface during the fast, um, man, a couple of nights in, I had a dream that I really felt like was from the Lord, um, in which I felt like God was saying that we're a little bit too rushed on Sunday mornings with our current schedule. And I wrestled through that. And, um, and then it was confirmed by a few other things. One of the things that, um, Bob Sorge talked to us about on Saturday night was making sure we're in the flow of the spirit and making room for the spirit. And, so I just want you to know that we're going to have a, a shift in our service times. And I know that's super annoying and it's always my fault. Um, but pastor, I've just kind of commissioned pastor Brad to say, we need a little more time. Um, and pastor Brad's going to transition us maybe after school starts and everybody gets settled. Um, but want to let you know the heart behind that is we're not going to just be long for long sake, but if the spirit of the Lord is in the room, we want to make sure we're not speeding through everything. Does that make sense? You guys kind of hear my heart. Um, if, if you hate the, the service times, if it just, you're just so mad about it, that's Brad's fault. Okay. Um, and so deal with, deal with him, but pastor Brad will lead us in that transition. Um, and, and again, we're just going to, we're going to make a little bit more room. Amen. Okay. Let's pray over the word and I'm, we're going to take us uh, to Mark chapter eight. So father in Jesus name. We ask that you would give us humble hearts today to receive the word of the Lord. Give us ears to hear. Father, today as we come to the scriptures, we ask that you would release a spirit of wisdom and revelation upon us. Lord, we're asking that loyalty to King Jesus would rise up in this house. Give us a fresh fear of the Lord. May Jesus be glorified. It's in your name that we pray. Somebody say, amen. Amen. Well, I was dragging um, at the end of the fast. Imagine that. I was just dragging. And I walked into the house, and one of my kids was watching Narnia. And you ever, like, where you're walking with the Lord, and, like, you just want to sit, but everything on TV is so perverse, like, all the time. And so Narnia, I'm like, I can take it. We can do that. Um, I, I must have, I think I've read... Um, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, at least two or three times. Um, but I was watching the movie, and there was this part that caught me that I didn't really, I've never really pondered before. Um, C.S. Lewis was so intentional with like every facet of his story. There image, there's imagery that he's expressing. We've talked before about The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and how C.S. Lewis put Father Christmas in it, and it's kind of like a strange part. But if you remember in, in the book, or for you non-readers, the movie, um, there's... I'm with you sometimes, Haley will say, did you ever read this book? And I say, no, because it'll ruin the movie. I don't want to read. I'm with you sometimes, but there's some books you need to read. <laughs> but if you remember, um, Father Christmas or, or Santa Claus um, brings the, the, the two sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, these gifts. And, and he says to Peter, who's like kind of the, the main leader, right? 
He says, Peter, Adam's son. Peter says, here, sir. He says, these are your presents. And he says, they're tools and not toys. The time to use them is perhaps near at hand. Bear them well. With these words, he handed to Peter a shield and a sword. The shield was the color of silver, and across it there ramped a red lion, as bright as a ripe strawberry at the moment when you pick it. The hilt of the sword was of gold, and it had a sheath and a sword belt and everything it needed, and it was just the right size and the weight for Peter to use. Peter was silent and solemn as he received these gifts, for he felt they were a very serious kind of present. Shortly after, you remember in the book, these four siblings stumble into Narnia, into this scenario where they're living in winter. It's always winter. There's a white witch that's dominated. But there's this prophecy that that four humans essentially will come into the land, and these four humans will, alongside Aslan, this great lion, will overthrow the white witch. Now, at this point, Peter's been given the sword and the shield, and all he really wants to do is to get his brothers and sisters home. Okay, so there's this idea that there's this prophetic utterance about these kids. But for Peter, at this point, he keeps telling his brothers and sisters, you, you, we need to go home. I need to keep you safe. And uh, there's this series of events where Peter's dealing with, with this wolf named Maugram. Um, do you guys remember what I'm talking about? Oh, if not, don't worry, because I'm an epic storyteller. Um, this wolf who works as kind of a secret agent for the White Witch is pursuing the four uh, the three kids, Edmund's already betrayed. He's pursuing them, and Mogram starts to taunt Peter. He's got Mr. Beaver, who's the sweetest character in all of the books. He's got Mr. Beaver by the throat, and he's taunting Peter, saying, um, why don't you just go home? He's saying, like, you're, you're not a killer. You're weak. And Peter's got the sword in his hand, and he's saying, just go home. You're basically like... Um, this is not your fight. This is not your battle. And again, all Peter's doing is like, I just need to get my siblings out of this weird acid trip. Um, and so he lets, he kind of, the, the river breaks, it's melting. He kind of floats away, but he doesn't fight the wolf. Well, it's just a couple chapters later and Peter's with Aslan. And so it's this, the idea of Aslan and, and Narnia is kind of coming to pass for him. Like the story, the prophetic storyline is opening up. And during this time he's with Aslan, do you remember um, the two sisters uh, get caught by, by Malgram and his kind of partner? And Peter comes to the rescue of Susan and Lucy and um, he pulls the sword again. And Aslan grabs one of the wolves and he's got the wolf by the throat. But then he looks at Peter and says, um, this is your fight. And everyone just watches and Peter's got a sword in his hand. Now, the idea of the sword for C.S. Lewis is the moment you yield the blade, you're participating in the prophetic narrative. Like the moment Peter swings this sword, he is saying with his actions, I believe that I'm called to overthrow the white witch. The the moment that he swings the sword, he participates in this unraveling of of evil and darkness. And so Peter's very hesitant. Again, he just wants to go home. Finally, the wolf Malgram attacks, and Peter kind of stabs him in the heart kind of sloppily and fearfully. And, And Aslan says to Peter, get up and clean your sword. Clean the blood off your sword. And then Aslan knights him. Do you remember? This is the part that I was watching going, what? Like I don't remember this at all. Aslan knights Peter. And he knights him as the wolf bane or the bane of the wolf, the one who destroys the wolf. And I'm pretty confident that Lewis has in his mind 
our text today as he writes this portion of scripture. Because we're going to read today as Jesus calls the disciples to this crazy, demonic, pagan worship spot. And, and Jesus is going to ask the disciples, who do you say that I am? And now for us, we read this par- paragraph, we read this passage really quickly, and we think, oh, you're Messiah. But for, for Peter to confess Jesus as the fulfillment of every Jewish prophetic narrative, to confess Jesus as the fulfillment of God's plan, to confess that this is the Messiah promised thousands of years ago who will crush the serpent's head. That's a life-altering confession. And we live in a modern Western Bible Belt where everyone says Jesus is Lord and it's just a stumbling of words from our lips. But when we make that confession, it must be. He is the fulfillment of God's plan from creation's foundation. He is my Lord and master. All of my hope is in him. He is the all and all. And by participating in his ministry and life, I'm carrying my sword to destroy the wolf of unbelief, to destroy the plans of the enemy. When you say, Jesus, you are the son of God, the Christ, you are not just saying, I go to church on Sunday and like to go to lunch afterwards. Right? When you say, Jesus, you are the son of Christ, like Peter, you're saying, I am wrapped up in the prophetic narrative of destroying the works of hell because I belong fully to Messiah. It's a life-altering confession. And if that confession rolled off your lips and it wasn't life-altering, you might find yourself in the realm of even the demons believe and shudder. Right? Like that, that, the, the, the confession, Jesus is Lord, should cause you to rise up with joy and anticipation. Like there is a destruction coming in Peter's realm, right? There's a destruction coming of the works of the witch. In our realm, there is an end to, to the serpent's reign. And God prophetically, from, from the, the all the prophets, are talking about the hour when the people of God will rise up with their swords, with their faith, and will live in loyalty to the king of heaven, and hell's reign will come to an end. Mark 8, verse 22 through 26. This is the disciples and Jesus. They came to Bethsaida. Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not enter even the village. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, I've I've read this for a couple weeks now, and thought, and studied, and went through every commentary I keep my hands on. And there are two things happening in our text. On one hand, 
we find this healing of a blind man. And I think without a shadow of a doubt, this is a historical event. This is a moment that Jesus healed a blind man. And there are some things we learn from it. Number one, we see Jesus laying his hands on the sick. That's why we still lay our hands on sick people and pray. Because Jesus did it and he taught us to do it. Number two, we see Jesus praying twice, which is kind of strange for us. Um, but he, he prays for a man and the man says, I kind of see. And Jesus said, well, let's just do it again. Um, and so I think there's a very practical implication that the church can keep praying for sick people. Um, we can keep pressing and keep praying. I actually read something recently on the like, so many people, we think of healing as always being instant. And it is an act sometimes like they just get up and walk. Um, but there's a lot of studies now on, on healing ministries and people kind of progressively get healed slowly. And so um, sometimes it's worth keep praying and keep pressing. And, and that's a weird take away from this text, but it's there. The, but, and I'm not, I'm not one to want to find allegory in historical accounts. I think that can get really messy really quick. But it's pretty clear uh, when you read this and meditate on it for a while that Mark showed this story of a blind man progressively receiving his sight. Okay, not instantly receiving his sight, but progressively receiving his sight because he's trying to tuck that into the narrative to show us that this is exactly what's happening to the disciples. That they are spiritually blind and they're starting to see. Do you remember, um, so Mark eight eighteen? so just the story before, Jesus, uh, this is where Jesus is on the boat and he says, um, beware of the, the leaven of the Pharisees and they say, and of Herod, and they say, we didn't bring any bread. And, and Jesus says this in Mark 8, 18, having eyes, you do not see. And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And so throughout Mark's narrative, he's showing us a parallel between natural blindness and spiritual blindness. And so I think it's pretty clear. And again, I'm not quick to want to draw these allegories all the time. But I think it's pretty clear that Mark wants to show us that in the same way that this blind man could kind of see and then could fully see, the disciples have been walking with Jesus now for some time and they, they, they kind of see. Like they recognize that this man's not normal. And they recognize that this man has some strange supernatural powers and they're afraid of him at times, right? He's walking on water and they're going, hmm. That guy's creepy. Um, They're afraid of him. But to say that he's Messiah, to come to the full revelation, again, is a life-shattering confession. We do this in our generation. We talk about the coming of Jesus, the return of the Lord. And some of you will say, man, we're getting close. I sense that Jesus is going to return. And others of you will say, yeah, my grandma said the same thing. And those of you who say, yeah, my grandma said the same thing, what you're actually saying from your heart is, I'm afraid to get my hopes up. I I refuse to get my hopes up that the end is near. And everyone always said that. Now imagine Judaism for 2,000 years saying that the new David is coming. And everyone's going, here's another Messiah. Like to confess from your lips... I believe that this man is the son of David who will rule and reign over all of Israel. I believe that this man will fully and finally crush the head of the serpent. I believe that this man is the, is the complete solution to all of creation's groanings and moanings. I believe he's it. That confession is big. So the disciples are walking with Jesus and going, he's weird. And he has some kind of special relationship with God. 
And he understands the scriptures better than anyone else. And then he's walking on water and they're going, that's not right. And he's, and he's teaching about, about the son of David and they're going, oh, is, he, is that what he's saying? Now they're starting to get their hopes up a little bit because again, this is like the longing of Judaism that Messiah would come. They're getting a little excited and they're starting to see and there's just this unraveling of revelation. So Jesus takes them to Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is a very significant um, location, historically significant, where Jesus takes them um, on this kind of retreat. They're just getting away with Jesus is a historic location for wild paganism, right? Like we know that there were, there were human sacrifices in this spot for years. This was a place where Baal was worshipped. This was a place where in this time period, um, uh, the god Pan was worshipped, who was kind of half goat, half man. And there were these caves where they, sometimes they called it like the gates of hell where they would, or Hades, where they would throw people, human sacrifices to the bottom of these caves. Like it was very much a place of demonic activity, we were, um, when we were younger, we did a, a, a tour of Israel, which if you ever get the chance to do, it's worth doing for sure. And, but this is one of the spots where like, you, you just know that it's historically accurate. It's one of the spots we know is right. And, um, we were walking with our pastor. I was probably 25. Seth was probably 24. And we were walking with our pastor who we really respected a lot. He's kind of a quiet man. But Seth, I don't know if you guys know because he plays off pretty well. He has ADHD pretty bad. Um, he likes to pretend like he doesn't, but he does. And we're walking around this pan temple, and I'm trying to be, like, reverent and, like, scholastic. And Seth is um, hopping down the stairs like a goat saying, I'm a little goat. I'm a little goat. And I said, stop it. You're embarrassing me. So it's, it's at the goat spot that Jesus is with the disciples. And before them, they have the kind of like thousands of people thought Baal was it, right? Like Baal had a great following. Like tons of people came to worship Pan. And you could kind of keep going. There's other, like a lot of other pagan worship that happened at this location. So lots of people put their trust in these false gods. Lots of people put their energy, their money, even sacrifice human beings to these false gods. And in the face of that historic paganism. Jesus says, who, who do you think that I am? He's, most scholars believe he's kind of standing, I don't know how to describe it, but it's like a, like a mountainside with caves in it. Um, he's kind of standing there saying, who, who do you think I am? Now the first response, he says, who do people say that I am? And the first response is safe. They say, some say that you're Elijah and some say you're John the Baptist. Now there's lots of prophetic significance to Elijah. Elijah, again, didn't die, right? He was swept away in chariots of fire. So in, in, in Jewish literature, you just find a lot of talk about Elijah's miracles and his miraculous um, being taken away into the heavens. And so sometimes they talk, and Malachi prophesied that Elijah would come again. And so Elijah was kind of a safe answer, a prophet. And, and obviously he's got power. So Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, some say that you're leading us to repentance. You're awakening the nation to repentance. And those are safe answers. And, and I, modern liberal theologians will say Jesus was a good teacher. 
there are even sects of Judaism where they'll say Jesus was a good rabbi. Muslims will say Jesus was a prophet. But that's not the historic confession of Christianity. I don't care. Forgive me. I'm in a, I'm in a mood today. Um, I don't care what, what the liberal Methodist church around the corner says. I don't care what the, the liberal Episcopalians say. Jesus was not a good teacher. Jesus is the unique son of God. And to say, y'all hear me, I'm just, this is, you want to talk about orthodoxy? To say Jesus was a good teacher with great, you know, we should study the Sermon on the Mount. That's, that's not even Christianity. That would be heresy for all of Christian tradition. Like the very foundation of Christianity is confessing that Jesus is uniquely the son of God. If you can't make that confession, you can't call yourself a Christian. You can't. I don't care what you call yourself, but it's not Christianity. And so the safe answer in in our culture is to say, yeah, I like Jesus. I like him. Yeah. But that's not the confession of the disciples. The confession was not, yeah, we like his teaching. We think he taught kindness well. And of course he did. The confession, Jesus says, but who who do you say that I am? And the disciples are standing together. And I think everyone gets a little bit anxious, right? Like a little bit nervous, like, we kind of talked about it behind your back a few times. But nobody said it out loud yet. Right? We, we thought about this, but no one had the nerve to stand up and say it. And Peter's the, the loud one. And so Peter finally says, I think with kind of a stumbling conviction. I think, you, you know, where Peter in, in Narnia, he stabs the wolf kind of like half-heartedly. Like, I, I think Peter says, you're the Christ. I think. We, we think. Is that the right answer? Um, And to make that confession is for Peter and the disciples to get their hopes up. Because again, they're not just saying like, we think that you're going to forgive our sins, which which of course he was. But they're saying, we think you are the ultimate solution to the brokenness of creation. We think you're the son of David. We think you'll sit on the throne forever. Now, there are, there are three things that I want to talk about before we close. One is, Jesus says to Peter in, in, in Matthew and in Luke, he says, Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And so, what we find in the Gospels is that this is revelation. Okay, In Jesus' mind, to confess Jesus as Lord is not something you reason to. It's something that is revealed to you by the Holy Ghost. And you need to listen to me for a second, because this might sound heady, but this is also historic Christianity. We believe in the revealing power of the Holy Spirit. Revealing meaning that there's a veil over the eyes of unbelievers. Uh, Paul taught us that, that the God of this world, or Satan, veils the eyes, or, or veils the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of the Lord. We believe that there is a blindness over humanity that Jesus is teaching here, that causes humanity to not be able to see. And the only solution to that blindness is revelation. Not reason. Now, we we believe in reason, and we think that revelation is reasonable. But reason is not our God. The Holy Spirit is. And He reveals. And so, let let me say this. I, I don't believe that believing that Jesus created creation from the word of His mouth, that's not unreasonable. What's unreasonable for me is to tell our kids that we came from monkeys and fish. It's unreasonable to me. I mean, I don't, I've never seen a monkey do that. 
nor is there like any record in the fossils. Like that seems unreasonable. What's unreasonable to me is to say, you know what? Like these rivers and mountains and sunset, they came from an explosion. I've never seen an explosion create stuff. I've seen it destroy stuff. I don't know. Just me. If you guys want to go out and get some TNT later, we could throw down and see what happens. But I'm just guessing people aren't going to come from the ashes. We could blow Brad up if you want and see what, just see what happens. So, so you guys hear what I'm saying? It's not unreasonable to believe what we believe, but we don't believe what we believe because of reason. We believe what we believe because the Holy Ghost has enlightened our hearts. And so in other words, um, revelation, it trumps reason. And what, what I'm trying to get to here is our commission is not to argue our kids are not to argue our city into the conviction that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus says in John six forty four, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. What does that mean? No one can come to me unless the father lures him, brings him in. John twelve thirty two. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. That's why we pray this in our church all the time. What does that mean? That when Jesus is lifted up, the Holy Spirit will draw the nations to Jesus. Not my church will argue with impeccable logic the nations into Christianity. And when you follow this idea, like when Paul, who was resisting Christ, right? When Saul's on the road to Damascus, the scripture says that that when when the light shined on him, there was something like scales that covered his eyes. What is God trying to say? God is showing us that there's a blindness over Paul. And when Paul gives his heart to, to God, Acts 9, 17 through 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. God was showing him in the natural what had happened in the spiritual, that there was a spiritual blindness. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 that God would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why is Paul saying I pray constantly that God gives you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. He's saying, I am praying that the spirit would reveal to you the mysteries of God. The ultimate, the epitome of revelation is here. It's the word of God. We have revelation. We have the breath of God in the scriptures. And these scriptures trump my own ability to reason. These scriptures are higher than what's banging around in my three pound skull here. This is the breath of God. And so I'm saying all that to say again that we should be reasonable. We can, I could have, not that I think I'm the smartest person in the room, but I could have a discussion with you about the historicity of the Gospels. I can have a discussion with you about the reliability of the Scriptures. We can talk about the empty tomb and the implications in the first century. I could have these apologetic arguments with you, but until the Holy Ghost pulls the scales from your spiritual eyes, you'll live in blindness. So for our kids, we want them to have good arguments and with things like, um, for instance, with abortion, right? Like I talk to my kids about humanity is valuable. Destroying a child in the womb is wrong. I can, I can give arguments for why I believe life is valuable. But ultimately what my kids need is an encounter with the Holy Spirit. To know his voice and to have scales of sin and humanity pulled from their eyes. What we're talking about is revelation, is conviction, the confession. 
the confession that Jesus is Christ, the first thing we need to understand is what is the source of the confession? The source of the confession is not your reasoning and ability. The source of the confession is revelation from the Holy Spirit. My sheep will know my voice. The source of the revelation is the Holy Spirit. Two, the joy of the revelation. I want to talk to you for a minute about the joy of the revelation. Many of us uh, in, again, southern, modern, Bible Belt Christianity, we, we have no real um, fruit born from our lives that bring glory to Jesus. We have this kind of half-hearted stumbling through our, through our faith. And I, and I want to say that like, if you are not excited about the gospel, I wonder if you have the source of the re- revelation because the source of the revelation, the Holy Spirit, produces in our hearts wild joy in the coming of Jesus. Like there's a wild delight in me that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Redeemer of all things. I am overwhelmed with satisfaction that the blood of the Lamb washed me and cleansed me and will one day sit at a table with me. He calls me Son and His bride. I am overwhelmed with delight in Christ Jesus. There is a joy at the revelation. When the disciples say, You are the Christ, they're uttering what their hearts had always hoped. And when they confess the confession, they are stepping into the joy and the delight of the revelation. And if you don't have the joy and the delight of the revelation, you can't produce the fruit. All you can do is kind of stumble with, I hope, I And that's what we have in our, in our nation. We don't have people who say, I know that I know that I know because the Spirit of God has revealed to me the glory of Jesus and I am wildly excited about it. Holiness is not an expression of religious tenacity. Holiness is an expression of the joy of the confession. You guys understand what I'm saying? You don't live a holy life because you're morally superior and you bit down your tongue and you refuse to watch everything. I live a holy life because I'm radically excited about Jesus every day. There's a joy in the confession. Finally, so there's there's a source of the confession, which is the voice of the Holy Spirit. There's a joy in the confession, which is the hope of the nations being alive in us. Joy unspeakable, full of glory. There's, there's a hope in me. And finally, there are, there are implications or consequences of the confession. The implication and consequence of believing that Jesus is the Lord of the universe, I would start with one, is like loyalty. When Peter says, you are the Christ, Peter is saying, I'll, I, I intend to follow you. I intend to devote my life to your kingdom. I intend to devote my life to your purposes and your plans. The idea of a king with subjects who have no loyalty towards him is outrageous. What king is filled with a kingdom of subjects who spit on him? I don't know, like American democracy maybe, but this is not, this is not kingdom. Like when the king of glory is revealed, the consequence of that confession is wild loyalty, fear of the Lord, respect, and reverence, submission, obedience. The revelation tells me that he is the king of glory with a purpose and a plan to restore the nations, that I am 
caught up in his purpose and his plans. And all I can do in my life is say, Jesus, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Our, our little tagline of the church is for his glory. What do we mean when we say we live for his glory? That we live for the glory of the king. Where he tells us to go, we'll go. I'll say anything. I'll do anything. The ultimate aim of my life is loyalty to the son of God. Not personal comfort. Not personal ease. Not financial gain. Not to fulfill my sexual desires. Not that I'm honored by men. I don't care if you honor me. The only concern is whether or not Jesus is pleased with me. And, and listen, I'm going I'm to yak for a second. We are, hmm, we're seeing in, in the generations, and I'm not talking about just the young ones, but man, we're seeing it in the young ones. We're seeing a serious lack of, of honor. We have a lack of respect. We have a lack of um, basic decency in the generations. And I want to tell you that the, the, the source of the disrespect and dishonor we see in the generations it starts with, we have no fear of God. The fountain is, we don't revere our king. And when we get in our hearts start to revere our king, then I can say to my kids, I love you with all my heart, but you are not going to, you're not going to act that way and expect me to sit on my hands and pat you on the butt. The, and the men in our community the men in our, in our region have to stand up with loyalty and say, we belong to Jesus fully and finally, period. And as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, and you little heathen kids are going to get in line. But, but the tail's wagging the dog, and we've embraced a kind of um, passivity in the church. And I, I want to say to the men in the room, like, rise up with loyalty and honor the King Jesus. Like, David had how many mighty men? 300? Like, the idea of being, being in Jesus' kingdom is that you're supposed to be a mighty man of God, ready to die for the gospel, faithful, loyal, loyal to his cause. So, again, there's a source of the revelation. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. We must value him and his ministry and his word above all else, right? We teach this word and we pray daily that our kids would be drawn to the glory of God. Their eyes would be open to see who Jesus is. There's a source of the revelation and it's, it's not your apologetic arguments. It's not your, I'm really skilled in evangelism. It's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the earth. It's one reason why we need to fast and pray. Okay, evangelism cannot be void of prayer. It needs intercession. One of the reasons we need to increase our intercession in our region. There's a source of the revelation. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a joy of the revelation. The joy that produces holiness. The joy that produces hope. The joy that says in a season like COVID, you know, the COVID pandemic when everyone's biting their nails. The joy of the revelation says, hey, there's a God in heaven. He's the king of mercy. He delights in his people. You can roll around and cry and wail and panic, but I'm good. Hallelujah. There's a joy in the revelation. And three, there's a consequence or an outflowing. There's, there's, there's basic logical inference of the revelation, which is loyalty and honor for King Jesus. And the church has got to learn the fear of God again. You guys hearing me today? So again, for, for Peter and, and Narnia, you know, it's, it's like, 
the sword's been put in our hand. Sword is being the word of God. And either you're going to swing it or not. And a lot of us kind of walk around like, I'm not really sure about using this thing. I'm not really sure. I like fellowship. Pastor Brad makes good snacks for the church. I got, a, I got this Bible. But there's a, there's a point in your life where you start swinging the thing. Until you start swinging the thing, you have not experienced the source of the revelation, the joy of the revelation, nor the consequences of the revelation. What does it look like to swing the word of God? And it looks like believing it with all your heart, confessing it with your mouth, talking about it, standing for righteousness, refusing to bow. I promise you, man, I don't think I'm tough, but you got to put a bullet in my head to get me to stop preaching this gospel. You're going to have to put me in prison. Put me in prison. I'm still going to preach to a brick wall. My wife talks to brick walls all the time. I've seen her do it. What does it mean for the disciples to say, you are the Christ? It means this is it. All of my life, all of my hope, all of my ambition is wrapped up in in who you are. Modern Western Christianity, what it means is that you might come to church once a month. And it's just, let's just acknowledge that there's a vast distinction there. Worship team come. Pastor Brad, good luck with this closing. I hope you just have a lot of fun. Why don't you go ahead and stand to your feet? And, and Pastor Brad and the team had a few words that, that felt prophetically this morning that we want to share. Um, but I want to challenge you, man. I think some of us are, we're, we're sitting on the fence and we need to jump all in. I think some of us have lost our joy and delight in the gospel. And the scripture says, in his presence is fullness of joy. We need to return to the joy of the Lord. And, and men and women alike, man, we need to learn some loyalty to our king. We need to express some fear of God and some honor. Team, we all sing for us for a second. I want us to worship. Just for a moment, I want you to worship Jesus. I want you to exalt Jesus just for a moment. <laughs>